You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. Good morning. How many of you got pranked this week on April Fool's? Come on, be honest if you got pranked. I heard a story. Um, uh, it's one of our staff people, her son, who lives out of town, texted her and said, uh, my car got stolen. And, and she freaked out. And she's like, oh, no. And so they call. And they're talking. And, and, and the way he let her know is that he just kept saying, yeah. And then the cops just kept asking me what day it is. And finally, it dawns on her that it's April Fool's. And she's like, so mad. So Sarah, I don't know where you are, but Jared got you good. It was good. So I just want to say that was, that was good stuff. I'm going to ask you a question. Last week, as we were at Easter, I asked you to investigate the claims of the trial of Christ. And we put our, our thinking caps on just to be the, the jury who were sitting there and in a courtroom scene, evaluate the trials that Christ went through. Uh, today, I want to do a different type of trial. And to, so to start off, I want to ask you a question. And this is my question. How do you feel you're doing spiritually today? How do you feel you're doing spiritually today? Now, please notice, as any good attorney would do, I, I asked not a thinking question. I asked a subjective feeling question. I asked you, how do you feel you're doing spiritually today? And when I asked you that question, in your mind, a little courtroom scene broke out. Like right away, the bailiff stood up and said, uh, today it's the spiritual condition of so-and-so. Please be seated. Everyone was seated. You sat in a little jury chair. The evidence for your week got presented. You might have thought, I've done really good this week or I've done really bad this week. And then all of a sudden, a verdict was given. The hammer was struck. Uh, the sentencing, and then you thought, I either have done well or I've done poorly. There's a little courtroom scene that went on right in your mind right here this morning. It's kind of like if I asked you, how physically fit do you feel this morning? You would do the same thing, right? I didn't work out this week. I ate too much over the weekend. I went to the Kings game on Friday night. I ordered food that is not good for a human being, and I consumed it. Um, and so, I mean, you just got to, you know, think through those things. A little courtroom scene breaks out in our mind, right? That's what happens. But I want you to understand something. Our culture has a lot to say about self-esteem. They think if people could just feel better about themselves, then they're going to do better in every single arena. Uh, but that's not necessarily always the case. Uh, psychologist Lauren Slater quoted three clinical studies which all conclude that people with high self-esteem pose a greater threat to those around them than people with low self-esteem. And people with low self-esteem and feeling bad about yourself is not the source of our country's biggest, most expensive social problems. Kierkegaard said there's something wrong with us as human. In his book, Sickness Unto Death, when he engages with the human ego, he said this, the normal state of the human heart is to try to build its identity around something besides God. Think about it. the normal state of any human heart is to try to build its identity, its worth, around something other than God. That's just the normal state. And, and I want you to see these banners that we have hanging up here today, because over the next eight weeks, we're going to talk about identity and formation and community and mission. And we're going to find out how spiritual growth happens. 
From the time that you accept Jesus Christ in, as Lord into your life, you say yes to Jesus through prayer. You say, God, I'm going I'm to introduce myself to you, and I want you to come in and transform me on the inside. Because I've been working, I've been trying, I've been trying to find worth in a lot of things, but I still feel empty, I feel stuck, I feel pain, I feel fragile in many ways. Even if we're successful on the outside, those conditions exist in a sense of emptiness on the inside, but we finally come to Christ and we say, okay, I will follow you. And now we have relationship with God. God begins to walk us through a process. It starts with our identity. Who does he say we are? It works then into formation, a time when you and I are tried, we're tested, we're tempted, and we're going to fail, and we're going to learn, and we're going to have to build up some endurance and we keep going back to formation type seasons in different parts of our lives, different seasons of our lives. Then we move to community and we talk about the friends who determine the direction and quality of our life and what does that look like? And then how do we get on mission to reach out to the furthest out person with the good news of Jesus in whatever capacity God has given you and the talents that he's given you to do it? And we talk about how does spiritual growth happen? We're gonna ask that question. We're gonna look at it. One of the problems though, and the reason I wanna start with identity today is because the normal natural state of the human ego gets in the way. It meddles with the natural process of spiritual growth. And we have a very real enemy who wants you to play the performance game with God. What do I mean by that? I mean, when you walked in here today, you either felt good about worshiping God because you've been feeling like you've been doing well. There's, there's not dust on your Bible. You've actually picked it up that, that you have actually been maybe reading and maybe you're in a small group or you're in a study and you've been growing. And so you felt like, I feel pretty good. And so you want to engage with God's worship. Others of you, it's been a brutal week. It's been a bad week spiritually for you. And you walk in like, I'm not sure I should even sing these songs. I'm going to taint like everybody else here. And we begin to play a performance game with God, and that's the arena where the enemy dwells. That's the arena where the enemy attacks you and attacks me. So what happens? You and I, we judge, we compare, we promote our preferences, we compete for a favorable verdict about how we're doing day in and day out. Like, am I okay or am I not okay? Am I doing well or am I not doing well? How do I stack up with everybody else around me? We begin to compete and looking in on the inside for a favorable verdict, and it's exhausting. We're always trying to get more. We're always trying to get ahead. We are a fast-paced culture, and we are always trying to do all these things that make our lives exhausting. And listen, for those who come into a relationship with Christ and have a relationship with him, our lives should be transformed. We should be different. And Paul is talking to a church in Corinth, the church he started, and Paul goes there, starts a church, and the church had a problem, and so he's writing to the church a letter that would be read to all of them, and here's what's happening. There are people in the church who, as the church is growing, they begin to say, you know what, I really prefer following Paul, or I prefer following Apollos, this young and upcoming preacher-teacher that was there, or they might say, I prefer Peter. Cephas is his name, but Peter, because Peter actually walked with Jesus. Paul didn't do that. Apollos didn't do that, but Peter was actually one of the disciples. And so they started competing over their favorite Christian celebrity. And this was going on where people were starting to get almost at odds with one another because of who they decided they would want to follow. And so Paul writes to them about our identity in Christ. He says, I found a secret way of living so that I am not consumed 
by the things that make us compete with one another. And if you want to know that secret, open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning with verse 21, and we'll go on into chapter 4 as we read together today. Paul says, So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or Peter or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. So just let me, he just levels the playing field right here. By the way, how many of you, your ego has gotten you in trouble before? Let's be honest. How many of you, your judgments have gotten you in trouble before? Be honest, right? You were maybe a little too suspicious, a little too quick to judge, right? You had to backpedal and go like, okay, so just by, by showing of hands right here, uh, we just got to know, how many of you, your, your boasting or your arrogance got you in trouble before? All right, that was all the rest of you who didn't raise your hands earlier. Good job. So... We just level the playing field that the church is full of people who are not perfect. That we are people who are declared righteous and perfect by Jesus because Jesus is perfect and our identity is in Jesus. But right here, we've just leveled the playing field to say we all struggle with our human ego. And Paul has just said, listen, everything you have is yours. Don't don't be, become one who's like competing, like, well, I love this guy or that guy or this preacher or that preacher. He's saying, listen, in, don't, this leader or that leader, he's saying, all, everything you need is yours because you are in Christ and Christ is God. You've got all you need and he's not finished with you yet. So right away he says, listen, we are the church and we are of Christ and God is a good, good Father, and he's working in us and through us. So he goes on, he says this in, ver- in chapter four, beginning with verse one. This then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and if, as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it's required that those who've been given a trust must prove faithful. Verse three, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me, right? He says, my, my conscience is clear. That doesn't make me innocent. It's an interesting thing that he's talking about right there because like you could have a serial killer and they could say, hey, my conscience is clear, but that wouldn't make them innocent, would it? They're guilty, but they just don't, something, there's a disconnect somewhere, right? Paul's saying, listen, I, I, don't, I don't let you judge me. I don't even judge me. My conscience is clear. It's the Lord who judges me. Verse 5, therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. And at that time, each will receive their condemnation from God. Is that what it said? No, it says praise. Each will receive their guilty verdict from God. Is that what it says? No, it says they're praised from God. You got to understand something that when God is the judge, he'll peel everything back. But for those who are believers in Christ, who've already given their lives to Christ, the judgment of God is at the Bema seat. The Bema seat would be the equivalent of the Olympics where they give you your medal. It's not the qualifiers. The qualifiers don't show up at that moment, do they? At that moment, those who show up are those who are the final three, the final winners, and what they do is they get a reward. The judgment of Christ is the bema seat of Christ. He's saying, listen, God's going to look at our motives. He's going to look at our works, at our hearts, and he will determine 
Who will receive their praise from God in that? It's a, it's a judgment leading to reward. Do you see how imperfect love, the fear, is cast away? The fear is gone. The performance game is gone. The judgment game is gone. The am I good enough to be here and worship God is gone. That God's the judge. And when he judges, he judges out reward for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Verse 6. Now, brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did not receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Isn't it interesting? He's just leveling the playing field. He's like, all of us, we were born into this world. All of us were born in this world with nothing. Anything we have, we were given. Have you ever heard a person say, oh, I'm a self-made man or I'm a self-made woman? Well, Paul would say, you've worked for some things in your life, but you are not a self-made person, a man or a woman. You're not. That you came into the world just like all the rest of us. That anything that you received was given to you, and if it was not, you're boasting as if you were the result of it all along. What's happening? You're puffing yourself up. I'm a self-made man. I'm a self-made woman. We puff ourselves up. And what happens is puffed up people end up following other people that they think can offer them something more. Well, what's the natural condition of the human ego? The natural condition of the human ego is pride. And it's interesting in this passage, Paul uses the word pride, but it's not the normal word for pride that's often used in scripture. That normal word would be hubris, but it's unique in this passage. The word is physio-o. In other words, there's a pride in your makeup. And the word physio-o means that you are overinflated. You're, you're swollen. You're, you're distended in your view of yourself. He's saying the natural condition of the human ego, your heart, my heart, is the natural condition of it is that we are boastful. We are overextended. We're swollen. We're kind of like a balloon, right? Kind of swollen. We're kind of overinflated. That's the natural condition of it. And some of you say, well, I walk in, I kind of feel like this. I feel like hey, it's all the air has gone out, right? I don't necessarily feel like this, but the natural condition of the human ego is like this. Author and pastor Tim Keller say that the human ego is empty, painful, busy, and fragile. And if you have your outline, take that out because we want to unpack a few of those together here today as we talk about forgetting yourself. That there can be a freedom in forgetting yourself. Number one, you and I are empty in our human ego. The ego by itself, it's empty. So, so we're puffed up like this bloom. We're, we're puffed up with really nothing of substance at its center, right? If we poke a pin in the balloon, there's just, you know, all of a sudden you just see balloon pieces. That's all you're going to see. We're puffed up. That's the nature of the human ego. And we search for something to give it worth, some specialness, some purpose, and then to build on that. Do you ever notice that that's what people do? They're saying, I'm, I'm puffed up, but I feel empty, so I'm always reaching. I'm always reaching for something else. If I could reach to that hobby, if I could reach for that experience, if I could reach for that relationship, then I'm going to, if I can get a hold of that thing, then I'm going to build on it. 
to try to puff up my ego. And many times we are reaching not for God, but we're reaching for what will build up our human ego because we're constantly in a state of trying to puff ourselves up. But not only is the human ego empty, the human ego is painful. It's painful. It's distended. It's swollen. You've maybe seen pictures of malnourished children with their stomach distended or swollen. You would think it would be the opposite, but that's, that's what happens to the body when it's in, in pain and reacting and malnutrition is that it's distended, swollen. And, and Paul's saying our ego is like that. The natural state of the human ego is painful. And what's painful about it is that what is broken on the inside is what hurts. How many of you have ever had your feelings broken? Feelings hurt. Just feelings are hurt. Your heart got broken. Your feelings got hurt, right? Well, I just want to let you know that it wasn't your feelings. You can't hurt feelings. Feelings don't hurt. Hurt is a feeling. Feelings don't hurt. Hurt's a feeling, right? Make sense? What hurts is that our ego got hurt. Someone said something mean or nasty. They did something behind your back. And you say, oh, you hurt my feelings. But the truth is, you hurt my ego, that's what really got hurt. My perception of myself, you damaged it. You hurt it. You wounded my ego. And because of that, now I feel the hurt. That's what happens. Your feelings can't get hurt, but your sense of self, your identity can get hurt. And so it's our ego that gets hurt. So what happens to us? When you and I have something that hurts, we start to give that our attention right? You stub your toe, suddenly that toe that you stub becomes the most important focus upon part of your body in that moment. That's how it works, right? Same thing with our ego. Not only that, but we're busy. We are very busy as a people. We're busy in our culture, but we're busy all the time trying to fill the emptiness. We're busy comparing to other people. Well, how do I compare? Stack up to her. How is that person's hair as compared to my hair? How is that person's car compared to my car? And we begin comparing. We begin trying to boast and build, puff ourselves up while we're comparing to everybody else. And, and, and you're judging and you're boasting. And what happens is we're only content pursuing more. And when we see somebody who has more than we have, guess what we do? We suddenly can't be content with what we have because you know what? They're more puffed up than we are. I got to do something to get myself more puffed up. And we begin to try to work at that. We have no pleasure in what we already have or what we have attained. We're trying to build our self-esteem resume. You ever do that? You know what I'm talking about, right? Your self-esteem resume. That's the book that you and I pull out when you meet somebody new and you tell them who you are and what you do and what hobbies you have and what you like. And you start to flip through your resume and say, this is what makes me me. In fact, I, I want to make sure that it's impressive to you uh, to show you who I am. And in Facebook, it's your about me section on your profile. And you basically just say all the things that you like and things you don't like and what you're good at and where you've been and what you have and what you do. And we begin to build all those things up. Why? Because we're busy. We're constantly busy comparing boasting, and judging. It's the natural condition of the human ego. The natural condition of the human ego is also fragile. It's fragile. It's overinflated. The natural condition is that it's overinflated. It's like if I put more air in this balloon, right? The natural condition is that we're overdeflated. You know what the problem with being overdeflated is? You can become easily deflated. That's the problem. Is when we're overdeflated, when we're puffed up, is that we're easily deflated. 
So you might be inflating yourself, comparing, judging like this. So you're doing that all the time and you're comparing yourself like, how do I stack up? And I'm trying to build myself up, but you're overinflated and you're easily deflated. And I got to tell you something. There are people who are walking around like this all the time, right? Some of them are actually like spiritually this all the time. I'm, I'm always broken before the Lord. I'm always like, God is just, you know, tearing me apart. And there's the people who are just all the time, they can never be like, I'm good. Jesus is good. Life's good. It's like, I'm always broken, just down before the Lord. You know, and other people are like, I'm always high. I don't have any clues. You know, I mean, they're always puffing themselves up. They don't think they ever do anything bad, right? But I got to let you know that a superiority complex and an inferiority complex are the same thing. They're the same thing. They have the same root. It's called pride. Because the person who has an inferiority complex, they're feeling deflated. Why? Because they used to be puffed up. Pride puffed them up and something or life or difficult circumstances came along and deflated them. But it's still their pride that keeps them deflated. The person with the superiority complex that looks down on everybody, thinks they're better than everybody, they're just way too puffed up and they're very in danger of being deflated. It can happen so fast. But it's the same root. It's the problem with our human ego. It's called pride. And let me tell you something. Spiritual pride is the illusion that we are competent to run our own lives, achieve self-worth, and find a purpose big enough without God. Let me say that again. Spiritual pride is the illusion, which is the crazy thought, right? It's the false illusion. It's the picture that we're competent to run our own lives. How many of you try all the time to run your own lives? Just trying, all of us, right? So many times, I'm just trying to, trying to handle it myself. I must somehow be competent to run my own lives, but I think if we look around the room and if we had honest conversations with each other, how many of you have made a mess of your own lives at times? Right? So we just established here for the jury today that we're not competent to run our own lives. We're not competent to achieve self-worth. Why? Because we will always look for more. So our achievement of self-worth is always looking for something better. We are going to judge. We're going to compete. We're going to boast because pride can exist in us. And third, we're never going to find a big enough purpose for our life without God. I want you to understand that is the core spirituality of the atheist. A person who says, I don't believe that God even exists, that person is actually a spiritual person. Why? Because they believe the illusion that they can run their own lives, achieve self-worth, and find a big enough purpose in life without God. That's also the condition of the spiritually proud. Suddenly, the spiritually proud person who becomes hardened, begins to think, I'm competent to perform. I am competent to achieve self-worth. I am competent to find a big enough purpose. God might be something I use, but it's not something that I need. And that's the spiritually proud person. That's the person who thinks they've already arrived. That's the person who thinks, hey, I may have heard some of these type of things before in a sermon series like this, but would just kind of shut out instead of saying, God, what's, what area do you have me in now? Do you have me in identity? God, at this season in my life, are you bringing me back to my identity because I've gotten off mission or I've made other things my identity? Maybe I've made my mission my identity. I forgot God. Now I'm performing for God, but I 
have forgotten him. Maybe your community, the people you hang out with are your identity. And it's all about the people you hang out with and God's gonna correct that and say, I love you, but I wanna bring you back to who you are, who I say you are. Maybe some of you, you think it's formation. You're like, I don't know enough. I've tried, tested, I'm a failure, I failed, I've not built up enough muscle, I don't have enough spiritual knowledge, I, I'm just always never going to make it. And, and God's like, time out. Let me bring you back to identity. Formation is where we, you and I build muscle and build endurance and build perseverance. But if you and I make formation our identity, then we play the performance game with God. You walk into church and like, I can't worship God today because I did not in my formation I wasn't perfect. And so if you're a recovering perfectionist, you're going to have to move out of formation back to identity first. And then the beautiful thing is God works our spiritual growth to move us again from identity to formation to community and get us on mission. And that's the healthy way to go. But it starts with our identity in Christ. The Corinthians were having trouble at church. In fact, they were unable to enjoy the relationships they already had with Paul or Apollos or Peter because they were so busy competing over having a special relationship with someone they deemed to be their spiritual celebrity. They were always looking for more, needing more, and then they tried to compare with other people. Well, I'm closer. I like this guy or I like that guy. And that's what they were doing. And our culture trains us to do that kind of thing, whether it's politics, whether it's in church, whether it's in your business. And there's an underlying discontent and emptiness in our ego that God says there's a way out. There is a secret out. There is a secret to contentment. And Paul wants to reveal what that is. Paul says that the gospel has transformed his self-worth and his self-regard and his identity. He's saying it's all about Christ. What does that mean? It means he doesn't look to any human court for the verdict that he is a somebody. Let me say that again. Paul doesn't look to any human court for the verdict that he is a somebody. He looks somewhere else. And he's going to tell us what that is. If you look again at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning with verse 3, he says this, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. So how do you and I reach the point that we're not controlled by what other people think? I mean, typically advisors would say, listen, uh, if you went out for just, you know, some sort of counsel, they would say, well, you just decide how you're going to behave and who you are and just be that. Don't try to be everybody else. You just decide who you are and be that. And there'd be some people who would hear that and they would say, well, I'll just set really low standards then. I'll just set really low standards. I'm just going to be who I am. Don't let anybody judge me, and I'm just going to live maybe destructive for myself, maybe even people around me. Other people are going to throw it off and say, hey, don't make me a role model. I don't want to be a role model. I don't want to influence anybody. I'm just taking care of me, which is a trap because you and I have a little verdict going on in our mind all the time that we're going to be competing and judging and performing according to our own standards in our own mind. We're never truly free of the verdict, but we've got to go outside of ourselves to find a verdict. If we can't trust our own verdict, our own court, and we shouldn't trust necessarily what everybody else says, to whom do we go? It's to Jesus Christ. So Paul doesn't look to himself to arrive at the verdict that he's a somebody. 
So where does he find it? He does two things. If you're taking notes today, number five, you know your sins, but do not connect them to your identity. You're not ignorant about your sins. You're not shutting away your sins or saying, denying that you have any. No, you know what your sins are, but listen, you're not connecting your sins to your identity. Paul said this in 1 Timothy 1.15. He said, he's speaking of sinners, and then he uses this phrase, of whom I am the worst. But what Paul is not saying is, he's, he's not saying it like this, I'm the worst. I'm all deflated. That's not what he's saying. He's not doing that. He's not saying, I'm the worst. And so don't, no, he's saying, listen, I don't even take my sin, the things I've done. I persecuted Christians. I attacked Christ. I threw people in jail. I had Christians killed. I attacked the church. And he'd say he knows his sins, but he doesn't attach them to his identity because his identity is who Jesus says he is. Second thing he does is he says, you know your accomplishments, but do not congratulate yourself. Know your accomplishments, but don't congratulate yourself. Don't pull out your resume and all of a sudden be patting yourself on the back all the time saying, look at me, look at what I do. Even spiritually, don't look at your spiritual accomplishments and be patting yourself on the back to go again. God peels back the motives of the heart. Philippians 3.8, Paul is writing to the church in Philippi. He says this, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. In other words, Paul was a Pharisee among Pharisees. When it came to religious performance, he was the future poster child, maybe even the future high priest for, among the Pharisees. He was like top of the tops. He was, a, he was the best prospect in years, the number one recruit of a Pharisee, so zealous that he would attack the church. And Paul could list out in front of a Jewish audience his accomplishments, and he would trump anybody. And he says, guess what? I consider all those things a loss. In fact, I consider them garbage. And I got to let you know that that Greek word is not the word for garbage. It's the word for poop. Somehow in America, we think we have to take the Bible and clean it up a little bit. I don't know. I think God was okay with Paul using that word there. And that's what he says. He says, listen, listen, I don't just consider it like something to be tossed out. He goes, I literally consider it as filthy, as awful, as unnecessary. I, I, I throw all those things away from me. Those things, that's what I consider them in the comparison to knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. And that's what he's saying to these people. Listen, you have all that you need. We have a level playing field. We have Christ. And so we don't necessarily follow after just human leaders or compete after human leaders. And we don't play a performance game with God. We come before him and we say, I have got Christ. He says that I may gain Christ. So listen, when Paul does something wrong or he does something good, he doesn't connect it to his confidence anymore. I want you to catch that. How many of you attach your sin to your confidence? I know there are men in this room, and because men in this room, some of you, you look at pornography, you attach that to your confidence spiritually, and it restrains you from becoming the leader of a man that you ought to be. I know some of you in this room, that you have such a low self-worth going on, 
that you attach that and you attach your mistakes and you attach what's in the little rearview mirror and make it the full windshield. And it keeps you from going where God wants you to go because you've made the little rearview mirror of your past your future. And so you don't pray to God like you should pray. And you don't depend on him like you pray. We play a performance game with God. What does Paul do? When he does something wrong or he does something really good, he doesn't connect it to his confidence anymore. How many of you would do better with more confidence in your life? I would. That's what Paul says is the secret. It's a good idea to forget you, forget yourself. It's a good idea to forget other people and their opinion of you. It's really best to forget you and forget me, but to remember Christ. And it's his judgment that truly matters. See, true humility stops connecting every experience, every conversation back to yourself. There's a freedom in forgetting yourself. See, our ego goes from, from being, being puffed up to being filled up. See, I'm no longer self-hating, but I'm also not over-puffed up. I'm no longer self-loving. I'm simply just filled. How freeing is that? How freeing is it to stop trying to over-puff ourselves up and, and being deflated to just being filled because you're giving your heart to Christ more and more and stop playing the performance game. I mean, do you get devastated by criticism? Is it deflating? I mean, do you give yourself a verdict as to your status and your, your promotion? Are you self-inflating? Or, or if so, you're in danger again of being deflated. But what if, what if criticism no longer devastates you? See, the gospel-filled person sees criticism as an opportunity to change. They don't attach the criticism to their confidence anymore, to their identity. Their identity is in Christ. But they see it, they hear the criticism, and they see it as an opportunity. Let me evaluate that. Let me evaluate the source. And I see it as an opportunity to change or to grow. But can you imagine differentiating that from your ego? How many times have you received criticism and you got in trouble because you got all defensive? And you overreacted. How many times did you receive criticism and, and you just took it to heart and you deflated yourself? And it ruined your day. Like your day was good until that happened and then it was just a bad, why? Because of the, na the natural state of the human ego. But there's a freedom in forgetting ourselves and there's a freedom in forgetting competing with other people. There's a freedom in knowing that your identity is in Christ. And next week we'll unpack it more closely but the identity you have in Christ is that he says, you are my son or daughter whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. It's a beautiful thing. I mean, wouldn't you like to be the kind of person, look at that, wouldn't you like to be the kind of person who walks by a window or a mirror, and when you look in that window or a mirror, you don't, you don't stop to admire yourself anymore, like, yeah. Look at me. Nor do you cringe. You're not like, oh, 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 you hate the mirror. You avoid the mirror. And, you know, some of you ladies are like, oh, bad hair day hair. You know, some of you are in front of every window, like with a selfie, you know. 
Wouldn't it be nice to be neither of those people? Not the person who cringes, not the person who puffs themselves up by how they look. Our culture is training us to try to look in a way that none of us can sustain. But wouldn't it be great to be free from that? Wouldn't you like to be able to celebrate the runner-up, even celebrate the winner even if you're the runner-up? Instead of being hard and bitter and feel like you're deflated because someone else won, what a bitter loser you would be. Wouldn't it be great to celebrate somebody else? Be able to? Like, how do you actually do that? You do it when you forget yourself and you forget competing against other people and you rest in your identity in Christ. Wouldn't you like to enjoy things that aren't about you? Like, just enjoy the moment. Just be able to be present. You're not looking for something to, to, to add to your resume. Your relationships, your conversations, your world doesn't have to be about your resume anymore. It's simply thinking of myself less. There's a freedom in self-forgetfulness. I mean, marriage partners, right? Sometimes in you, you know, you're going to feel deflated, and then, but then you're going to puff yourself up about all the good things you do, and you're going to put yourself in competition to what the other person should do, and you're going to be like, you, you should be deflated because you think you're all puffed up, but look at what I've done. Then you start competing. You're never going to win that, are you, marriage partners? Good luck with that. We've all tried it. How's that working for us? Not so well, right? Isn't it better to forget ourselves and to forget competing against someone else? Let's love one another and work toward improvement together instead of playing the comparison game. Here's a beautiful thing. Only in the gospel do you get the verdict before the performance. Only in the gospel do you get the verdict before the performance. Every other religion is human effort trying to puff itself up to be good enough to get to God or to nirvana or to heaven or to uh, some uh, enlightened status, right? It's all human effort trying to, can I just puff myself up through my practices or through my behaviors to get good enough for acceptance, whatever that acceptance means. Maybe it's enlightenment or, or self-awareness or, or it's you know, some performance in a religion. But let me tell you, only Christianity says you're deflated. You're never going to make it. There's no way. It's too much. You can never puff yourself up or perform your way to heaven. You can't do it. So Jesus, God himself, comes and stretches out his arms. He dies. He takes our sin upon himself. He says, I will bridge the gap. I will be the first responder. I will be the one to come and do CPR. And guess what happens when Jesus does CPR? We become filled up. And we are declared righteous through his identity because our identity is now in him and his performance, not ours. How beautiful is that? How freeing is that? Imagine for a moment if we walk into church and say, okay, God, my identity is in your righteousness. You've declared that my sin gets, that you, he who knew no sin, became sin. My sin went on you. You became that so that I might become the righteousness of God. Talk about a bad deal for him, right? But he loved us enough to take it and to pay for it, and he's powerful enough to rise above it and to conquer it and cancel it out, now we can come into church and say, God, I am, I am filled. 
I don't have to play the performance game with you, God. I can come and I can worship. I can engage in worship because you are filling me up and my identity is in who you say I am. And who do you say I am? You say that, you, that I am a son or a daughter of the Most High God with whom he is well pleased. He loves you. Listen, God spoke that of Jesus before Jesus performed anything. He hadn't gone on mission yet, but God spoke to him the identity, and then we have the identity of Christ. What does that mean? You're a son or daughter whom I love and with whom I am well pleased, God says. There's freedom in self-forgetfulness. See, in Christ, the verdict can give us freedom to actually now be who God says we are. Actually, now, when I want to do good things for God, and I, I'm going to do that, I'm going to honor him, and I'm going to search out his word, and I'm going to approach him with full confidence, not like wounded, not like afraid to look at God anymore, but now I'm going to approach him with full confidence that he loves me, and he cares for me. How beautiful is that? Now I'm going to be the person that he's called me to be. I'm going to get on mission. I'm going to put the right people around me. I'm going to walk through formation, and sometimes I'm still going to mess up but I'm not attaching that to my confidence anymore in who Christ says I am. There is freedom in self-forgetfulness. I don't give power any longer to what you think. I don't give power to what I think. I only care what God thinks, and the court is adjourned. Can you imagine a soul being free from being empty and painful and busy and fragile, a soul that is simply filled? Will you bow your heads, close your eyes with me? Just as we kind of close our eyes and take some time to just think about our own life, I know in this room that there are some of you, you're pursuing wrong things because you're hoping that they fill you up. And it's hard for you to let go of those sins, those habits, those hurts, those hangups. But you know they get in the way between you and the Lord. And right now, would you just be honest with God? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you already have asked him into your heart, would you just be honest with him? To say, God, I, in just an honest way, God, I, I've been committing idolatry. I've been running and reaching for other things that can't fill me up. And would you just say, God, I just simply want to rest. I want to rest in your love. For others of you in this room, this is just interesting as you have your eyes closed. You're just thinking about your own life. And maybe today for the first time you realize you have never received Jesus as your Lord. You've never asked him to come into your heart. You've never asked him to make you spiritually alive. You've never entered a relationship to where he says, you're my son or daughter whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. But God offers you a relationship like that and he offers it to you for free. The only thing he asks of us is that we forget ourselves. That we just give ourselves and our mess and our problems and all that we are to him. And if that's you today, you'd like to enter a relationship with God to receive the forgiveness of your sins and re receive relationship with God himself. If you feel that pull in your heart right now, then you pray a prayer right where you're seated. You can just pray something like this. You might want to just repeat it right after me. And you can say it in your heart. God hears you. But you just say this, Jesus, today I give you me. I ask you to come into my life. Make me a new creation. I believe you died on the cross for my sin, that you were buried in the grave, that you rose to new life because you are God. 
and I ask you to fill me with your Holy Spirit and make me a new creation because today, Jesus, I give you me. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.